0: I see a few more kids here today, and I want to just uh, uh, reiterate something that I think is true of our church. Um, we don't have nursery right now, given um, our COVID moment, nor do we have children's church, which used to have children's church ages three to seven, um, but we, we like to hear noise from kids, so um, uh, it doesn't bother me. If it bothers you, uh, it's just part of the church. I don't think the early church knew anything about uh, nursery or tr- children's church Children's pastors, uh, they just knew about kids, young people, old people, married people, single people, all together. So if it gets loud, I'm okay with it. Let it be loud. And uh, just, just parents know that uh, we're okay with a little noise, it makes it a little more fun and lively. So um, if you would one more time stand up as we read God's word um, together, we're making our way through the book of 1 John. Um, this is chapter 4. Verses 1 to 6. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, whom you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. may be seated. So to begin today, John begins with an assumption. It's an assumption that we live in a spiritual world. It's a presupposition to the text. John's not going to argue about is there a spiritual world or not. He's going to assume it as we come in. And that'll just mean that we all have a sense of conviction or a, a, a moral a compass, a sense of right and wrong. Uh, that's true. There's a sense of we know we're made for more, that kind of argument, but we John assumes that we live in a spiritually charged world, that there are forces at play beyond what we see in the world. Um, They're at work. He's going to say that there is a spirit of God, we would call that the Holy Spirit, and there are these other spirits active in the world. Um, One of the great tragedies for the church is that we've lost that basic assumption In fact, we're we're critiqued or we're criticized if we hold that assumption that we do live in a spiritual world. Maybe it's a a great tragedy for the church. It's probably a great win for evil that we assume uh, in our Western, enlightened, educated world uh, that the world is not charged in a spiritual way. I read a 2016 Psychology Today article this week. It it quoted both uh, Ben Carson uh, graduate of Yale and an MD, y'all know him, former uh, presidential candidate. Uh, it's, it quoted Supreme Court Justice Anthony Scalia. Both of them referenced the enemy or the devil in some of their work. The the author uh, bemoaned them and mocked them as being archaic and out of touch. How could you be educated and th- believe in the devil? we talked about this a few weeks ago with the Antichrist language John uses again here. What a backwards way of thinking. He ended the article. How could anyone believe in the nonsense of the devil? And uh, that's um, a, a basic starting point for many of us in the West, right, for America. I mean, so I, I just met a few first-year med students uh, go, go around uh, your M1 class and talk about the devil. See how, how, that, how that goes for you, right? Um, see how you're treated in that regard. And, and one of the reasons for this concept is because um, we've made evil or the devil a, a, a cartoon, we, a caricature. If I told you, that, you know, the word association game, I say a word, you tell me what first thing comes to your mind. If I say the devil, what do you think? Like Pitchfork? Right? Maybe red face with like smoke coming out, right? Um, There's some uh, professional hockey team mascot, you know. You think of a kid, you know, the bad kid at Halloween, you know, that's the devil. Your horns, maybe some tights. Um, and, And what that's done is it's brought humor, but it's also given us an occasion to dismiss. Uh, a real sense of evil in the world, right? When we can mock it, we can Saturday Night Live it, and we can make fun of it, then we don't have to actually take it serious as though a spiritual force in the world. You see how that works? Um, we've, we've undercut the premise with cartoonish figures. Maybe a, the good angel, you know, some, some medieval picture of the good angel on one side, right? The devil on the back, and they're kind of battling it out for your soul kind of idea. And so we've created a mockery. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's famous work, The Screwtape Letters. Many of you have probably read that. Short little book. Uh, Screwtape is the senior demon. And Screwtape writes to Wormwood, the lesser demon, his nephew. And the senior demon is going to tell the lesser demon how to trick us. How to keep us in captivity. And this is the, the advice the senior demon, Wormwood, uh, Screwtape, gives to Wormwood, the junior demon. He says this, But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The patient's us, right? The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, just suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade to him that since he cannot believe in that, This is an old textbook method of confusing them. He therefore cannot believe in you. Make educated, smart people think about evil and cartoonish, you know, phantasmagorical ideas. And then we don't actually have to take it serious. It's probably the biggest hurdle for us. This is not so much a hurdle in African tribal churches. (laughs) They know the presence of evil. But for us, we have to overcome the sophistication barrier to take it serious. Um, The Bible assumes it. Paul, Ephesians 6, "...for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. John's not um, proposing a choice. Either we believe in spiritual world or we don't. He's assuming we do. He's telling us we have to make a choice between that the spirit of God or the spirit of the world or here it says of the Antichrist. So, How do we navigate the spiritual world? Two two things we're going to look at today. First, uh, we're going to see that we must test, we must test the spirits. It says in verse one, "Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We have to choose." To say, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic is a choice according to John. You can't say, I don't believe in the whole spiritual mumbo-jumbo. In a Christian worldview, you've made a choice not to trust or choose the Spirit of God, but to choose the spirits of the world. And no choice is a choice according to John. The command is, don't believe every one of them, there's a lot of them, but actually test The spirits. Last week we talked about tests of faith, right? A test is an evaluation. It's an assessment to discern. So John says we have to discern the spirits, we'll talk about what that means, as we encounter them in the world. We have to actually use our brains to evaluate, to discern what is right from wrong. It's interesting what John does. Automatically it's a pushback to your world, isn't it? You're going to use your intellect, your mind, your thinking ability, your rationale to discern the supernatural. That seem like a false. That seem like a dichotomy to you. You're going to use your reason to engage your faith. All right? Culturally, those are separated, right? Science, medical folk, right? If you're, you're, I believe in science, right? You're over here. <laughs> I saw Josh Birdie. I had to say that a little not your reference. Uh, I'm over here, science, reason, that has nothing to do with faith, right? That's not what John does. John says, you use your, your intellect, your mind, to engage your faith. They work together. They're, they're hand in hand. Now, the Bible knows nothing of a dumb faith. We don't close our eyes and jump off a cliff with some leap of faith. We actually engage it thoughtfully. Um. Notice the nature of the false spirits. This gets it a little bit further down to earth for us. Uh, The nature of the, they come from false prophets or false teachers. John's saying, don't don't this thing, some mystical floating around demon, he took evil spirits and he put them in the lips of teachers, of people, of ideas. They're in the realm of concepts. Now we can work with that, right? Now we can discern it. Now we can evaluate it. Now we can do something with it. Apparently, John's readers were tending to accept uncritically all the false teachers or prophets of the day. They had a word from the Lord. And there was many of these words from the Lord. There were many prophets in the first century. And John was saying, they're, they're deluding the church. They're leading us astray. And you've got to use your mind to test them against that which is true, to evaluate them. Some are from God. Some are of the spirit of the Antichrist but there's no neutrality. There's no neutrality. I remember uh, freshman year, uh, I was in a big biology lecture hall, hundred and something people, I don't know, and, and there was a young, young professor, smart guy, uh, and he got up and he did the syllabus, he did the thing, you know, office hours, did the thing, and then he kinda gave the guiding principles of the class, and one of them was, hey, this is a secular class, this is a secular university, Like we're not going to bring religion into this thing. Um, It has no place. We have no place for superstition in this class. Right? And that's his, he's the teacher, that's his prerogative. Um, And and we would be hard-pressed to say, he's a false prophet. You know, like we don't put labels on people. But notice what he did. Biology, the study of life or living organisms. Think about that for a second. He just said that category, that topic is off limits to our faith and to our reason. Right? Life, the thing that God spoke into existence, like he breathed life, poof, right? He created the world. He created man in his image, the body, the complexities of it. He upholds it. He upholds the universe, the world. The world. In his hand, all things by his providence was just told by a young man. Hot shot professor that that was that off limits from religion. It was in the realm of, uh, of verse, chapter five, or verse 5 we'll say, the ways of the world to bifurcate faith from reason. I was a senior and uh, I was in a sociology of religion class. Lady had a PhD, you've heard some of this before, PhD from a Christian university in religion. And throughout the class, she would say, uh, "Basic premise: her her all religions are the same. You know, uh, we're all many paths. Um, whether it's keeping the Torah, whether it's uh, the Prophet Muhammad, whether it's New Age, uh, whether it's Eastern Nirvana, uh, whatever Gandhi, Jesus—he's the way for Christians. They're all the same." They're different paths to the same God, force, being, reality. Um, John would say that's a false teacher. It's a false prophet. She's in the, in the realm of ideas, but pushing those to distort the people of God away. Now you get away from that in a secular university. And yet it's prevalent around us. Other examples, understanding of sexuality. Understanding of ideas what it means to be male and female, understanding of money. There's, an early, there's actually a list from a first century uh, a Jewish uh, historian, Josephus, a list of things that there were many false teachers, and he lists things like greed, sexuality, speech, respect of authority, as just a few things where many false teachers were leading people astray. We have to test the spirits. In other words, there's lots of voices, right? There's lots of things being said, and we're called to test them. Here, the specific false teaching has a point. Look at verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. How do we know? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now in the world. So, the specific heresy, the specific false teaching here, he says there are many, the specific one is related to Jesus. to How we think about him. If you confess Jesus, that God became a man, any spirit that doesn't confess that is a false teacher, is a false prophet. We now have a litmus test. To deal which is true and which is false. John dealt, we've talked about Gnosticism a little bit. Um, One of the tenets is the the material world is bad, the body is bad, the spiritual world is good. John was combating one of their teachings that Jesus was, uh, he was God, but he wasn't really man. He only appeared, it's called docetism, he only appeared to be man. Because certainly God would not become like us in this little Crummy body in this crummy earth. And John says, a false teaching's going around the church is those that deny that Jesus, that God came in the flesh. If you know John, he, he starts his gospel with: in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John says, Jesus is God. And then here in 1 John he says, you have to confess that Jesus is in the flesh, that he is man. This testing the spirit here is doctrinal. We must believe he is God, he is man. And the early church would wrestle, how do we build guardrails? There's all these false teachings. There's all these voices. We all have Facebook and Twitter, and there's all these words. How are we going to set up guardrails? And the early church had councils, and they took John's words, among other parts of Scripture, and said, we've got to believe he's fully God, or he couldn't save us. He's got to be fully man so he can identify with us and suffer in our place. And they became guardrails of teaching against the false prophets. That confession, he is God, here he is man, it weeds out all other religions. It weeds out cults like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. It weeds out Eastern pantheism, New Age. It weeds all of them out because they can't grasp the central amazing concept that we teach that God would humble himself and become a baby and become a man. The, the, the incarnation of Christ should blow your mind another thing we've disserviced with little baby Jesus in the manger we've missed the unbelievable theological premise that we're saying God became like us we've got to believe that there's no neutrality we've got to test the spirits um, The second half of this text says we not only have to test um, the spirits, but regarding the spiritual world, we have to trust in the spirit. That's the opposite. Not the spirits, but the spirit. We call him the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse 4 to 6. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, and for for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They, that's the false prophets, are from the world, therefore they speak for the world, and the world listens to them. But we, talking about the apostles, are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth versus the spirit of error. Do you see dividing? Error and truth. There are false spirits and there is the Holy Spirit. Now this is challenging because the first four, three verses he said what? Test the spirits. There's false teachings. You're being led astray. The church is being tempted. So be on guard. And then in verse 4 to 6, he says, What? He says, You've already overcome them. You're from God and you've overcome them. So why are we on guard? We've already overcome them. There's this great confidence, there's this great victory. And and the, the best way I could try to explain it, and you've probably heard this, so bear with me, this analogy is the whole World War II example. I think it fits here, I think it's helpful. You know the, the difference between D Day and VE Day? Do, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? D Day is that, that, uh, that great battle, that decisive battle when the Allied forces, you know, the British and the American, among others, they came across the English Channel to land in Normandy in France, where the, the Germans had a stronghold at, you know, Juneau and Omaha, these beachheads the Germans had secured. And the Allies came across the Channel. Ship by ship, it was bloody, it was casualties, they lost tons of life. But the Allied troops kept coming and coming and coming. They finally took over the beachhead. And what did the Germans do? They lost and they had to retreat inland. They had to retreat back to France, back into Germany. Uh, It was the beginning of the end. It wasn't the end, but it was the beginning of the end. At that point, it was inevitable the Allies' troops were on mainland Europe. It was going to happen. They were going to win. And yet, it wasn't the end. That was June the 6th, 1944. Germans wouldn't surrender until May the 8th, of 1945. 11 months. The decisive battle was won, but there was an 11 month gap where they were still fighting. They fought the famous Battle of the Bulge during that period, they fought other battles and yet the handwriting was on the wall, right? They were going, Germans were going to lose. Um, theologically, we, call, we talk about the already and the not yet. Um, the decisive battle has been won in Christ, his death and resurrection. It is so sure that we are in Christ, it will happen. We have overcome, and yet we live between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, and so we deal with battles. And we deal with temptation. And we deal with false teaching. And yet the battle's been won, and yet it's not complete. Already, not yet. D-Day and then Victory in Europe Day. It's, 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 a, it's a helpful, I think it's a helpful analogy to understand the end. The text says, uh, verse 4, we have overcome them. It's a little confident. We have overcome them. We are from God, and we have overcome the dark forces. Seems a little optimistic for me until you read the next part. It says, uh, "It says, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's the same way Jesus would say that word overcome. is the same word Jesus would use. John 16, he says... Uh, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Victorious Jesus, what happened the next day? He was crucified. Victorious Jesus, I have overcome the world, crucified. Right? You have overcome the evil spirits, test the spirits. They're out to tempt you, they're out to lead you astray. It seems uh, a contradiction, like it doesn't fit the circumstances, and that's kind of the point. The surrounding circumstances are not the ultimate uh, reality for us. They're not the ultimate consideration. Back to where I started, that's why I talked about a spiritual world. We don't look at the world with just materialistic, natural eyes. We look with spiritual eyes. There are things happening in the world that are beyond our sight. The world is charged. We're more than atoms and molecules. There's a spiritual battle going on, and we're told that we have overcome, and we live in the victory, and we are from God, but our confidence is not that we have defeated the evil spirits and the evil one. Remember the apostles, the disciples, there were Jesus, Peter denies, right? Judas, apostates, the rest of them are scared to death, they scatter They're with Jesus, and they run. (laughs) I don't think we would fare much better. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There's temptation for all of us. The confidence that there's something inside of us, the Holy Spirit, that is greater than the evil spirits. The spirit is greater than the spirits. Last week we said there's something greater than our own hearts, and we feel condemned, right? We feel judged in our own heart. God is greater to give us a word. Here we say there's something out there that's forceful and strong, and yet there's something in here, the Spirit, that is greater than the temptation, than the trials of the world. We have to be careful because on one error, the beginning is we don't believe in a spiritual world at all. We're we're too intellectual, we're too smart uh, to confess. You believe in some kind of spiritual forces In our setting is... It's taboo or it, you might lose your job. Right? And yet the other extreme is that all we do is talk about evil and spiritual. We, we think that the devil's behind every bush, right? Every conversation's about that. That's also an error because greater is he than us and he is in the world. Um, some of us have that, that medieval Catholic view that there's sort of a 50-50, Right? It's like, you know, good and evil, angels, demons, God, Satan, and it's kind of like a 12-round 12, 12 boxing match, and we don't really know who's going to win, it's kind of up in the air, you know, or it's game seven, you know, I hope the good guys pull it out. That's not the story of Scripture at all. The story of Scripture is that God is sovereign, He is all-powerful, He is all-knowing, From the very beginning to the end, he knows he is victorious. He reigns, he rules, we belong to him by his spirit. The the verdict is not out. The the verdict is not up uh, to be determined. It has been determined by him. The spirit of God preserves and secures us. Verse 5 says that the world systems, they teach... The world hears it, the world likes it, the world follows it. But our confidence to stand against that is not that we're just better people or smarter people. Our confidence is that the Spirit of God assures us, preserves us, grounds us to stay in the truth. We are from God, we have the Spirit of truth. What does that mean for us? Let's finish here, verse 6. What's the application? Verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How do we know? What do we do with this? How do we know we trust the spirit? How do we know we're not being deceived? How do we know we're not walking in the wrong path? We listen to the truth. We listen to the word. Here the the apostles, the authors of scripture are pinning the words of scripture. Right? They didn't have the text at this point. They have it, it's circular, it's being passed around and John's telling these churches to hold to the truth that I'm giving you. I was with Jesus, now I'm giving this word to you. Listen to this, not the other voices. For us, we listen to the voice of Scripture. The Spirit of God and the Word of God work together to confirm With the people of God, as we discuss, we talk about the word. In the church, God gives leaders. We're training up elders right now. What do the elders do? They're called to protect, to guard the truth. So that if I start preaching something that's not according to truth, they say, hang on a second, pastor. Or if there's something in the church that leads us astray, we say, hang on a second. That doesn't sound like the spirit of truth, like the word of God. And we come back to it and we wrestle with it and we talk about it. We stay true to the Word of God by the Spirit of God. That's what we're called to do. It says, by this you know the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit versus the Spirit of error. By the Word, together as the people, we can discern. That doesn't sound like the Word of God. This is what the Word says, and we're able to decipher. Look, uh, the decisive victory has been won. The death and resurrection of Jesus has secured it for us. Um, I don't know if this is a good analogy or not with sports, but if you knew in the game, you knew the outcome you were, was a victory, Like, how would you play the game? I don't know, there's something about the suspense of not knowing, right? But we know we're secure in Christ. There would be so much freedom, there'd be so much joy. There would be, you would just play free, you would play aggressive, right? Wide open. Because you know victory is yours. And that's what it is for the believer. We know that greater is heathen in us than is in the world. We are secured by the Spirit of God. The first fruits, the deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance, Paul says, is in us. And so now, what do we do? We test the spirits. We're not afraid. We don't fear evil, right? They'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death, death the greatest, Weapon of the evil one, of the enemy, what? I fear no evil. It hurts in this life, but we are untouchable and secure by the Spirit of God. It changes how we live. We're not afraid of the dark side. We live in a spiritual world. The first hurdle is to believe that. Um, I found the more educated you are, the harder it is to believe that pretty sharp folks out there, Uh, we've got to know we live in a spiritual world. Um, And as we do, uh, as we know that, uh, we have a choice. The choice is not nothing. The choice is, are we going to follow the way of the world? Are we going to follow the Spirit of God as it leads us to truth and to His Word? Let's choose the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your